Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins and I'm here with Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Mirison Bowie. Hello, Barney. And today we're joined by one of the finest music writers of the last three decades, Mr. Simon Reynolds. Hi, Simon. Hi, it's great to be with you guys. Oh, great to see you. <laughs> Simon's joining us all the way from Southern California, where you've lived for how many years now, Simon? It's, it's about 11 years now, and then before that I lived in New York. So I've, I've lived a long time in the States, and I've only picked up a very slight American twang. I think I lead such an isolated, recluse-like <laughs> life that I'm not, I've not picked up, you know, sidewalk and, and things like that. I still say <laughs> yeah. pavement. I was going to say, good, where's, good, the, good. where's the mid-Atlantic accent, Simon? <laughs> no trace. I mean, on balance, do you prefer South Pasadena to Brixton? Well, they both got things going for them. I mean, you know, there's obviously more energy in, in South Pasadena. London. <laughs> <laughs> South Pasadena is lovely, but it's not it's got much, much street life. And um, it's, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, I miss uh, the ferment of energy yes. of London and New York. But, um, it, you know, for the time of life I'm at, living a suburban life, you know, I, when I was lived in Berkhamsted in Hertfordshire, you know, I thought it was the most boring place and and but now i just think like oh, it's a really nice place to grow up and all the fields <laughs> and fresh air and yeah, what was like exactly. it, was a good, it was a really good library you know what was i complaining about but i think it's the thing, <laughs> it's the thing you, you go through isn't it through life you sort of the things that you reject when you're young you sort of start to see the sense of when you get older <laughs> no, i totally understand we're going to talk in this episode about your Melody Maker days and and also about your Melody Maker colleague, Bob Stanley, whose group Santa Chen releases a new album next week. But we're going to start where we usually start by asking you how you got into, quote unquote, music in the first place. What are your earliest musical memories, Simon? Well, I... Listen to my my parents are really into musicals, so I grew up with watching musicals and listening to West Side Story. And they also had like Sinatra's um, songs for swinging lovers. That sort of record I can actually perform most of side one <laughs> in, a, in a continuous thing. It's not something anyone would want to witness, but you know, I, know, I, <laughs> I know I know all the lyrics and the intonation. Um, so I, wow. with that stuff, not rock and roll. My parents just missed rock and roll. Um, okay. They were like, I don't know, in their early 20s, in the early 60s, but they were still in the, the jazz and musicals era. Okay. But, um, yeah, then I, you know, I liked things like the Beatles and I saw, you know, I saw Top of the Pops and liked glam. I wouldn't have known it was called glam, but I, I liked it. And um, How old were you then, Simon? How old were you when you first saw Oh, that? well, I was born in 63, so I would okay. have been 8, 9, yeah. 10, sort of when... I saw T-Rex and things like that. But really seriously taking music seriously was was through my younger brother, Tim, now passed away. But he brought back all these sort of punk records. And um, I was very taken with the swearing on them. It just, I, I'd, not, I'd not known that, you know, I'd not heard John Lennon had sweared, you know, you're all right. fucking peasants. I didn't know that swearing was possible on a pop record. <laughs> um, and so it was, yeah, the Sex Pistols, fuck this and fuck that. Fuck it all, fuck a fucking brat on bodies, and and then the Ian Jury, you know, arseholes, bastards, fucking cunts and pricks. That's my. <laughs> That's more than I, mean, I, like, I think we've ever had in one episode. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know what your policies were. No, it's lovely. It's great. We love it. We welcome it. 
actually, I'm relieved because I've got some particularly nasty Kim Fowley quotes to read out later oh, on. And, oh and you've given me permission. Oh, no. Oh, no. No, I don't, I don't think that's true. But, uh... <laughs> oh, souls, bastards, fucking cunts and pricks. Aerosol. The bricks. So when I heard this, when I heard the swearing, I was like, I want in into this, whatever this culture is. And uh, so, yeah, and my brother brought back X-Ray Specs and a Buzzcock single and all kinds of stuff. So it was really Tim who um, turned me on to punk rock uh, and then it quickly became post-punk. And then I started reading the music papers. So that was really where I, I thought I could actually participate in this, not being musical (laughs) (laughs) well so one of the three pieces as you know that we're featuring on the homepage is this fantastic epic sort of hymn to the music journalism that you sort of no not 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 (laughs) not not, leave me out of it but it's a great piece you wrote for pitchfork and in it you do mention this experience very similar to the one i had of being in a wh smith and i think buying your first nme and reading uh, Michael Watts's uh, piece on Malcolm McLaren. So was that sort of the beginning of your yeah, way was, into yeah. music I, writing? I, yeah. I don't think I knew the music press existed, but me and my brothers were so into the Pistols, and it was actually a Melody Maker, um, and it was like a, the third part of a three-part series on McLaren's whole story, and he was in exile at that time. He was like living in Paris, licking his wounds after losing control of the Pistols. Yes. So, you know, I hadn't caught the first part of the story but I, I read the first two installments but I read the third one and I must have read it about 10 times or something that summer it was so fascinating and and Michael Watts is a really good writer a really good sort of oh, reporter yeah. of these stories it had multiple sources and all this kind of stuff and uh you know stuff about McCann making a slits movie I was I just gotten into the slits and I had no idea that at one point he was mooted to be their manager and had some really appalling sexist idea of the film he would make with them and yeah I just read it over and over and I came over with the ideas that the situationists were a rock group because there was a reference to um, them having Jamie Reed was going to do Sex Pistol covers that were made of sandpaper to just destroy the other records which was a, a situationist <laughs> idea so I leapt to the conclusion that the situationists made albums and I was like I gotta get these situationist albums they, they sound even more <laughs> Even more evil than the Sex yeah. Pistols. The third album then, is the um, best. <laughs> like, like, um, like a lot of people in those days, Six Form Common Rooms would would um, subscribe to a music paper. I think it was an actual big source of the readership for the music paper. And my Six Form Common Room had the NME. So I started reading that. And, uh, you know, quickly, you know, first I noticed Julie Birchall and then it was Paul Morley and then Ian Penman. And then I started buying it myself. And I think that's sort of when I noticed Barney's writing and kind of very quickly gravitated to his ideas and 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 taste as well. Like you introduced me to loads of great records. So I start a bone to pick with you though about the um Out in the Jungle by the Saints. If you want to PayPal me the three ninety nine I spent in the Oxford branch of You want your money uprise <laughs> for that, you know. We'll we'll call it because otherwise actually the new race album was actually really good, so maybe it's you know. Did I rave about? I, I can't. Remember. I loved the first 
What, I think two that was or three it. Saints albums. You were just enormous. seizing any opportunity to write about the. I think that was the it. first two, which were fantastic records. I bought them as well yeah. on the strength of your adequacy. I think they're some of the greatest punk records of all time, and I like the fact they all had like long hair and sort of shabby sort of yeah. jackets. There was no punk kind of like uniform, was there? Yeah. Well, it's very exciting reading the music post for all the ferment of ideas and the fighting but also like you know it's kind of backfilling history i just didn't know most of this stuff i'd never heard of yeah. the saints i'd never heard of love or i think I had a very vague idea of the birds were you know and so the references that writers like barney and others would make to the past were really useful in terms of like trying to sort of build up a picture of you know i had very limited funds so there's a lot of scurrying around taping records and you know going to libraries and things but it was exciting. I mean, the music papers were just an amazing education and amazing kind of, you know, a lot of them you had to kind of get a dictionary out to read the articles. Yeah, Paul Morley and Ian Penman. My, my idea of how was <laughs> an Ian Penman interview with Green, 3,000 words, of which I understand not a single word. Simon's idea of heaven, by the sounds of it. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah. I mean, you, obviously, you got your foot in the door at Melody Maker, but before that, you'd started your own music magazine, uh, Oxford, I think it was Monitor, yeah. which I remember you gave me a copy of, and uh, it was pretty impressive. When did you first like want to write, think about writing about music yourself, Simon? Well, I always wanted to be a writer. My dad is, was a journalist, and so he instilled this sort of, you know, having a byline is fantastic. If you don't have a byline, you don't exist, right? Yes. Yeah. It was, very, it was very much like that, yeah. I mean, he had a great obsessive desire to be famous, my dad. And my mother was going to be a journalist, and then she had me and later did journalism. And, and she was the one who really turned me on to writing and, and introduced me to books and things. So I, first I wanted to do science fiction. Actually, no, I wanted to be... The next Monty Python at one point, believe it. And then I want <laughs> you want to be the whole really... the whole Monty Python team. You wanted to be well. The new actually, band. I wanted to be Michael Palin. Uh, Michael I picked Palin. My, I picked my college at Oxford because Palin went there. And I was, <laughs> I was not, and I'm not known for my jokes, That's great. but I was quite good at it when I was 13. I could do quite good sub Monty Python stuff. Then I wanted to do science fiction. I got into science fiction, which I think is a much more common thing that rock critics start out with a love of science fiction. And then I, you know, found the music papers. And I was like, this is it. This, I, this is what I, I got to do, really. So then, yeah, there were various college magazines where I wrote about Bow Wow and, and, you know, tortured little theses on things. And then we started Monitor, uh, which was very much conceived as not a fanzine. Like, it didn't have any local coverage of the Oxford scene. We didn't have uh, any interviews. <laughs> it was all these bombastic think pieces and orations about the decline of music in the mid-80s and stuff. You know. Colour me shocked. A group of yeah. Oxford students would put together something like that. I know. <laughs> I know. Well, Beggar's actually, no, Beggar's very untypical of Oxford students. It was all inspired by, the, in my part, by what I'd read in the enemy. And when I was arrived in Oxford, I was a little disappointed. It wasn't full of philosophers and poets and stuff like that. And ah, I'd eventually ah. found, you know, found the sort of weird people and the interesting people. Was, but, was David Stubbs part of that? Yeah, I saw his, I can claim to discover David because he was at Hartford and I had a friend there and I saw his writing in the college paper and I thought, this guy is amazing. And I turned up at his door and knocked on it and uh, apparently I bore a bizarre resemblance to someone he knew in his hometown of Leeds who he hated. So he kind of <laughs> stepped back like, fuck, this doppelganger's pursuing me. 
And meanwhile, I was ogling all these records. He had the best record collection I'd ever seen. And I was like, I'm going to, you know, I want to recruit this guy for the paper, but I'm going to also <laughs> tape all this guy's records, you know. So um, and David also was a, big, was a DJ later on, and so he would be buying these import New York, New York 12-inches, and which seemed like a fantastical thing to do as a as a student on the grant to buy these records that were yeah. twice the price of a normal record. So, yeah, that's I, I kind of recruited him to monitor. Yeah. And you both ended up at Melody Maker. Did you sort of join Melody Maker at the same time and did Monitor, was a Monitor a sort of passport into that world? It wasn't actually. I, I, I just approached, I tried the enemy first. It was a hard place to get into at that time. Mm. Then I sort of tried Melody Maker and they were immediately, Steve Southern was immediately sort of welcoming. I mean, he was trying to sort of build up the Melody Maker, which was very much the underdog at the time. I think it sold less than sounds actually as well. So uh, so he recruited loads of people and he really gave us like this playpen to just do what we wanted. And then, so David joined about six months later and then Paul Oldfield, another of the core people of Monitor, he joined. So we were all there. And then we, there were other people at the paper that we kind of formed a gang with, the Stud Brothers. And that's where I met my future wife, Joy Press. Yes. yes. I think one of the few romances that ever occurred. And uh, or through the auspices of, um, I don't know though. I don't know about the seventies. Do you know when I I was researching shock and awe, and I was looking through all these old melody makers. At one point, the staff writers were called staff men, which gives gives you an idea of of you know the male dominated nature. They changed it by about seventy one. It went to just staff writers, but you know staff men. In the sixties, so um, but that's an aside. Yeah, no, it was a fantastic time. The music press really was exactly kind of how I thought it would be. Like just this, you know, a lot of drinking and arguing about music, and you know, staying up all night to write your copy, and then having cappuccinos in the centre of London and discussing all these ideas and stuff. It was yeah, it was good fun. Do you think you changed Melody Maker that gang and? Looking back from this distance, how would you define its kind of personality if it had one relative to the NME? Were you were you trying to really define something that was that was different from the NME? Do you think consciously? Yeah, I think we were. Yes, I mean we were trying to find a sort of a zone we could make our own. It sort of became new bands in a way, and and we kind of had a thing for a while where we were picking up stuff from America, we, we kind of went, actually went against the sort of traditional reflex of music papers, which is to big up the British version of everything. We were like, no, the British indie scene is shit and all the exciting music is like Huskadu and Dinosaur. But then some really good British groups started coming through, like My Bloody Valentine. So we kind of were able to sort of present them as the saving graces who were saving British music from the wedding present and stuff. You know, David Gates, lovely bloke, but yeah, I did, we didn't like the wedding present. Were you part of the Arsequake generation? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it was called the Arsequake League, uh, which is like just like a throwback to the you know the interwar period of the League of Nations or something. But yeah, we did we did come up with that word. David and I still disagree who came up with it. The idea was there's all these kind of groups that had really gnarly heavy bass, like rock groups, you know, butthole surfers. Mm-hmm. We foregrounded that in their name, in a way. and um, <laughs> But, you know, the Swans and I don't know, there was there was a sort of lot of heavy music suddenly seemed mm. to be coming through. Like the, the, the indie scene seemed to get work its way through the 60s. It was all jangly and birds-like for a while. And then it kind of moved 
towards the late 60s and everyone had long hair and people were taking drugs again and or pretending to take drugs again and making records that sounded like they were taking loads of drugs <laughs> i think in a lot of cases and uh, and you know and you even got a few people who played solos like this that was an unheard of thing but suddenly you had jay maskis doing these very lyrical but sort of heavily wah-wah'd affected mm. solos but like with actual complex emotional melody lines through them <laughs> so it was like yeah we're in the late 60s now and that seemed <laughs> that was another thing we kind of were pushing against the enemy because the enemy either had your indie people or your your wedding present people or it had the soul boys you know the soul boys were what could more upset paolo hewitt than to sort of us to bring back heavy rock you know yes so there, was a, there was a bit of that you know because it was the opposite of a, it was the opposite of a mod aesthetic it was the opposite of the style council aesthetic which we didn't have any truck with Maybe it's a good moment to mention Bob Stanley because I don't yeah. know in terms of the timeline, Simon. I don't know when Bob joined yeah. MM or when you first became aware of him. He's—I don't know really. He's sort of—he was a fairly low-profile, unassuming figure, and um, still is he, in a way. He's very—he's a very—you <laughs> know—he's uh, not like um, yeah. He doesn't sort of shout himself out in the world. Uh, I don't mm. think as a you know as a. Despite being a sort Physical of pop star. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, despite being a pop star and despite, you know, writing these amazing books that just show an incredible knowledge of music. Yeah, he was sort of, you know, he was doing a lot of writing about Manchester. I think that that's when you sort of, like, not just the Stone Roses, but a lot of the other groups at that time. And he was the first person I came across who wrote about World of Twist, who later became one of my favourite bands at that time. Sure. So I didn't really, there wasn't really, I didn't really get much of a sense of how... Uh, huge and interesting knowledge and taste he had of music or that he was going to be this sort of Phil Spectory kind of figure. And even when he did the first couple of St. Etienne singles, because they were cover versions of like the Neil Young thing and then the Feel Mice thing, you know, he didn't necessarily think they were going to do original songs that were really good, which they did do. And, and uh, so I was really not for six by Fox Space Alpha when it, when it came along and I was like, wow, it sort of disproved the idea that critics shouldn't, Pick Make up records. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, exactly. he's, he's the exception that proves the rule, I think you can reasonably safely say. Yeah. I mean, we, we actually didn't, we mark at one point put together a, a piece poachers, which I think is on. Poachers on turned RPP. gamekeeper. Poachers so. turned gamekeeper. We just wrote, we wrote down every single person who we knew had ever written any like record reviews anywhere and then become like, you know, musicians and stars, you know, so it's Patty Smith, Neil Tennant, but there's some, there's some strange names on there and some quite cool people. I wanted to uh, quite talk about San Etienne again in a little while, but just to bring it back to your, your, the arc of your story, Simon, and, and to talk about your move to America, you mentioned joy, you wrote this fantastic book called the sex revolts together about um, gender and rebellion in rock. I mean, I can't remember the subtitle, but it was just a, as with all your writing, it just made me think in ways that I hadn't thought before about, you know, misogyny and sexism and just male privilege. And, you know, it was it was a remarkable piece of work. I mean, all your books have been, I mean, you've written a number of really acclaimed books. Did that coincide with, well, Blissed Out, obviously, I think 
preceded your move to America. But what changed for you when you moved there? I'd always been fascinated by America and American music and um, actually specialised in American history at university and I thought of doing American studies. So, you know, but the main thing is I fell in love with America and, and you know, New York was a very intoxicating place to, to go to and I would fall into de- depression when I came back to shitty, cold, damp southwest London but um, I don't know if I don't know what really changed in terms of my ideas. I mean, I think the the idea of the sex revolts kind of came just almost accidentally after an encounter with a musician who told this joke about you know it, the joke was something like what's the worst thing um, what's the worst thing about raping a a child having to kill her afterwards and we were and he was we were supposed to laugh and we were stony faced and we were thinking like why is this sort of humor prevalent on the underground rock scene why are there so many songs about killing women and then i started yeah. thinking about nick cave had this sort of the love death thing theme in his writing and uh and then we just had this this sort of e- evening where we just talked and talked for about three or four hours and then we decided there was a book there and and so we pursued it and we kind of expanded it from misogyny to talking about more idealized imagery of women or femininity uh you know slightly in psychedelia and things like that and then we discussed a lot of female archetypes in music and and all the different ideas of female strength or female mystery or you know all these personas so it was really good fun writing it um and it's very hard work because we were like having to We've, you know, cover huge history and listen to things we've never really listened to, like Dylan. Never got around to Dylan somehow, and uh, <laughs> and still really haven't actually even now. Um, but you know, I was what was interesting about it for me was these were all my favourite groups apart from Dylan. It was like you know the Rolling Stones and the Stooges, you know, and to just uncover this sort of weird matrix of you know with Iggy Pop, this sort of militaristic imagery, this phallic. Yeah imagery was really exciting and sort of how do you then when you realize it's rooted in certain kinds of psychology and politics how do you retain your love of it and, and um, mm. you know it's sort of a essentially I think like the same thing actually with a lot of films like if you go back and look at films of the 70s uh, I saw MASH recently and this the sexism I mean is is terrible and it's also like you actually find yourself rooting for um, Hot Lips Houlihan and <laughs> the, the, the very square major, the, the, the militaristic upright guy, you know, because the other the other characters are just dicks. They're just dicks. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, like it's really, really badly dated. Uh, but a lot there are a lot of movies like that rooted in the same kind of value system as rock uh, at that time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How do you? Because you know your writing is really excellent and really readable, and very kind of lofty in some respects. Like you will tackle topics like gender and class and race and sexuality. And I mean, for example, amusingly on your Wikipedia page, one line is: "He has on occasion used the Marxist concepts of commodity <laughs> fetishism and false consciousness to describe attitudes prevalent in hip hop music," which is a hilarious <laughs> sentence. But when you actually go and read the piece that that's referring to, it doesn't come off like that, and it's actually just really well written and really interesting <laughs> thank god for that yeah but so how how do <laughs> yeah. you kind of approach like intellectualism about music or anything along those kind of lines well at the risk of embarrassing barney I've, I've learned from the masters of how to write about these things 
dropping a little bit of Foucault in there or a little bit of <laughs> a tie while keeping it vernacular and while keeping it still related to the kind of sensations you feel listening to rock and roll or rap or or rave music or whatever. I mean, there is a way of doing it where you have all those things going on. You know, you have the ideas, but you also have, you know, the kind of energies that are stirred up in you through mm. music, which, you know, is are quite can be quite violent feelings. And there's a kind of violence to music. I think I'm I'm actually quoting or sampling green gut site there but um, <laughs> um who's another influence actually uh, a big influence on my thinking about music there's a lot of musicians who i would read uh, even someone like malcolm mclaren his sort of ideas of how culture work would would be an influence along with the writers on the enemy yeah no i think i think there's a, a you know i think i early on uh, when i look back i did use a lot of unnecessary long words and i've sort of tried <laughs> to train myself to sort of you know, like I once used the word transmogrify. Actually, I think I used the word transmogrification, which uh, makes me flinch. But uh, there's no need for a word like that, really. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to still stand by. I'm going to just. I used the word discorporealization. I think in a spiritualized, <laughs> and I still think it was the right word to use. So there, <laughs> but Foucault didn't appear in that. Sometimes, the, you know, the, the, the long word or the esoteric word is the only word. And, and, you know, why not use it and maybe someone will look it up and it, uh, join their vocabulary. But, you know, generally these days I try and use more everyday words and then put them in unusual combinations, ideally, is the plan. But, yeah, no, I, um, yeah, I'm glad you said that it, it doesn't read as pompous as the Wikipedia entry. Uh, there are pomposities <laughs> here and there, I would say. But what I like is that it's 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 personal. I mean, to take this um, piece worth the weight as an example, where you're writing obviously quite a nostalgic way about your relationship with the UK music press, and you're talking about you're comparing that to you know reading about music online and so forth. But it's, it is actually very personal, and I like very much what you say about you actually do you you bring Roland Barthes into it <laughs> but I think I think very appropriately because your argument is having to wait for a week for the like the new issue of the NME made it a much more precious and important experience than than just everything being like on and coming at you 24 hours a day the sort of instant nature of it and I just wonder because you obviously do still write about music. I mean, how do you, do you feel comfortable in this world now where, where, you, where you're in a sense writing all the time, you're always on? I don't really tweet much or use social media much, but I still have a blog. And I think that was kind of the speed I like where, you know, you could do something really quick and responsive, but you could also do something more considered and you could make it any length you want. That was something I like, but you could do like enormous rambling blog entry and then like something very telegraphic just a little quip or something or a single thought you know but yeah the social media it doesn't really sit well for me i've never worked out how to tweet well and and get those tweets that get traction good for you but, but yeah I, th I think the thing i is this a, you know i think i say this in that piece is that there's just too much stuff and there was something about having it in a bundled form that sat around in your room the whole week until the next one came out, and and I would reread things, you know. I would and I would and I cut things out, kept them, and read them later and months later, and um, still have them actually. These crumbling 
clips that I cut out. And there's something about the, the, a paper print magazine, which I think, you know, carried on, you know, early, especially early Mojo had that kind of thing where it's all got a unified look. There's a unified sensibility to the captions. You had a gossip column, but like in the music paper, there'd be a gossip column. There'd be all these different things that made up a kind of vibe. And you sort of pitch these people, you know, you'd picture the people writing it as, and there might be photos of them, you know, when they did the singles. So you might even have a face. Uh, yes. You picture their lifestyle. It seemed like they could, I guess the music papers also like to mythologize themselves. Like, imagine they could turn this really nothing pub, the Aporto, into this sort of uh, mythical watering hole for the rock and roll scene, you know. <laughs> and um, there's something about these sort of magazines that have a kind of collective vibe. Is it esprit de corps? Is that the term? You know, it's sort of. Uh, yes, that's a sort of yeah. Iggy Pop esque, militarist sort of term. <laughs> yeah. And, and then they'd also have fights. Well. I like the fact that you have you don't get fights in like there are no fights. I don't think going on on online music papers, but with it with it between the writers, like no one's ever like feuding, you know, in a fundamentally amiable way. But like yeah, you yeah. know, as if it really matters, you know, like take yeah. the, the the idea of where the music scene should go or whether a re- uh, an artist is a complete con or is a savior. You know, these sort of debates would really seem like there was something important behind them i'm gonna read just this this it's actually not a whole sentence i read half a simon reynolds sentence on this issue really the internet stokes a restless distracted omnivorous music libido the opposite of the intense and lasting attachment fans gave to a single generation defining band like joy division or nirvana or to a movement like punk or rave um and i think that's it is no coincidence that we haven't had in a, a major important rock band like Nirvana since mm. Cobain died. So I don't know whether you think that will ever happen again, or whether we're, we're just in a completely fluid sort of atemporal the, era. There seems now. to be these figures that people do like wait expectantly for the next deposit of music, you know, like Kanye West, and there's a sort of car crash thing like, you know, what the fuck is it if you're gonna come up with and will it, how offensive would it be? And so there are there are these figures, you know, where there's anticipation and waiting and a collective conversation about them. But yeah, I don't know if there's been any in rock for a long while. You get smaller buzzes and smaller they're like kind of local buzzes around a particular band. I would actually I would say that those local buzzes I mean I, I for me I see the internet as just now it's possible to build up that kind of groundswell of enthusiasm that one needs to feel part of something with a much smaller number of people where, you know, now you can be part of a small scene and feel like you're part of something big by Mm. virtue of being able to connect to almost everybody else who's part of that scene. Whereas before the internet, you had to be, the the scene had to be big enough to be able to feel part of it because you didn't have such immediate access to it. Yeah. And so I don't think it's necessarily, I mean, for me, I don't think it's true that the feelings and intensities have gone down because it's more fractured. I think that the the more fracturous nature just means that there are all of these different things happening with mm. the same kind of passion, but to a smaller scale in terms of just the number of people, but till to the same kind of depth, if you see what I mean. And I think another thing is, and I noticed my son here, and he's become a music writer, and he uh, I didn't push him into this direction. It's just something weirdly decided. It's the family business, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Um, but yeah, he, and he's become a genreologist again, which is kind of odd because that's sort of 
a thing I was doing quite a bit. Um, but yeah, I think that's where the excitement coheres is around spotting these sort of clusters of sound, you know, that, you know, all these online genres of rap and weird electronic music. And uh, they seem a bit more fleeting. They don't seem to stick around as long as like something like Jungle did or which it was more embedded in this real world structure of pirate radio and record shops and things. But yeah, they, you know, people, the, that excitement level is the same. I mean, I think young people of my son's age are just as worked up about music. It's just not quite as, I don't know, it doesn't clear as, as you, as you said about around these sort of Cobain like level. It doesn't feel but quite does that, so does urgent in the culture, does it? It doesn't feel quite I so d- urgent. It's just sort of... I disagree with yeah, that. Yeah, no, okay. I, 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 th- I sort of disagree, Barney, as well. I, I think that it, it, there is a false nostalgia in looking back at the sort of some sort of wonderful good old days when huge bands could emerge and so on and so forth. And I, I think Jasper's saying is really interesting, is that actually mm. what you could do is look at different places, li- yes. you know, lift up different sort of bland, you know, eider down, see what's under there sort of thing, yes. you know. yes. Yeah, no, I, 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 I absolutely. It's more like my, sort of micro communities rather than macro yeah. communities, yeah. perhaps. Maybe we should just talk briefly about Santa Chien, just because. Well, I'm also I'm very fond of Santa Chien, and also we should mention the connection. What we were just, what you were just saying, Mark, that Simon's book Retromania, <laughs> <laughs> which was such a great term. I think of Santa Chien in a way, a little bit in the connection retromania. So we've we've added this piece that you wrote about. It must be one of the earliest pieces you wrote for the Observer when Fox Base Alpha was about to come out. You mentioned that earlier, and it's just lovely. I I mean I love the sort of details that that uh, Bob Stanley and Pete Wiggs had known each other since the age of two, and had been <laughs> and had been fantasizing about making pop music almost since then. And then as they said, they they can't play instruments, so they hum melodic ideas into a tape recorder, gather a few records with beats or sounds that they want to sample, and then go into the studio. And the record I remember first, like many people, of course, is is what they did with Neil Young's song Only Love Can Break Your Heart with with Sarah Cracknell singing it. And apparently, according to you, it took two hours to record and 80 pounds. It cost 80 pounds. (laughs) And it's just, it's a fantastic record and they made a number of these just wonderful singles and you locate them in you know in the sort of pop tradition you mentioned joe meek or they mentioned joe meek and bob says we like pop because it's fast instant and glamorous rock groups like the doors lack humor and suffer delusions of messiah-like grandeur i mean in a way it's a sort of anti-rockism reborn isn't it yeah absolutely i I did i can't remember if that was based on the same interview that i did a longer interview for melody maker but they were really deep into their aesthetic and i felt like i got the key to what their aesthetic was when they said they just didn't understand parliament funkadelic like what was to be enjoyed about it and i was like ah that they don't like us, it's messy. And their whole aesthetic was like Northern Soul and this and, and French girl pop of the 60s yeah. and this sort of dainty, classically structured thing. And anything kind of, you know, I mean, I think the Doors have a lot of humour and it's a glorious sound and, I, and I'm and i all for delusions of grandeur. But, you know, yeah, you quite their... like delusions of the <laughs> like grandeur. Yes. I'm thinking of like Perry Farrell, you took me to see Jane's Addiction at Brixton Academy, I think, before you right. gone to New York. And he was a sort of messiah, or a kind of false he messiah. Be, yeah. He was a false messiah. 
That's funny because yes. we also went to Lola Palooza, right? Didn't we, we went go? to Lola, we went to the first Lola Palooza in New so, Jersey. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But I love what you're saying about Sansa Chen, and, and and you also say in this piece there's something very English about them, despite the sort Absolutely. of yeah yeah influences and Spectre and all of that. Yeah, I always thought they were like a sort of better version of what Britpop was than what yes. Britpop was. There was a oh, sort gotcha. of the first wave. It was World of Twist and early Pulp and Saint Etienne. And this, they had a much wider, it was like an Englishness that was very, very English, but also liked, you know, liked the continent and liked, you know, things from France and Bossa Nova records and, and uh, you know, it wasn't doggedly stuck on this, you know, Kinks, Beatles, Basses, Slade kind of matrix that a lot of Britpop. And lots of with. just, lots of really lovely songs. I mean, Nothing Can Stop Us uh, is... is I love the way that's put together. Anyway, they have a new album out, I think next week, called I've Been Trying to Tell You. Have you sort of kept up with them through their many records now? I think the last one I heard was the one that has a song that um, is all about a, a sort of celebration of a life through music and all the, rec- you know, all the records yes. that you might have liked and, and memories of seeing Dexy's Midnight Runners on top of the pops. That was the opening song. I haven't really kept up with them since then. The first two were really the ones that I really loved. And then there was the record, I think it's The Sound of Water, which is sort of like the adult, grown-up Sinetian for the first I love time. that record. I mean, how we used to live the, on, on that yeah. record. Uh, it's like nine minutes long, and it turns into this really sort of rapturous kind of dancey thing at the end. I lo- I, I'm very, very fond of them. Yeah. In the pantheon of unlikely pop stars, I think, Bob Stanley, you know, um, and stand, stands very high. Yeah, and yeah. I don't, I don't know Pete, and I don't know Bob, to be honest. And I love there's something about Sarah Cracknell that's sort of very unique yeah. as well. They're very unique, aren't they? They, they? You can't really compare them to anybody else. I'm going to take you back 10 years, actually, from 1991 to 1981, because, well, let me ask you, did Heaven 17 um, mean anything to you at that time, particularly the Penthouse and Pavement record that's 40 years old this month? Yeah, that was a big record amongst our crew, uh, the Monitor crew, although we were, I think we were the Margin crew, then we had a different, an earlier <laughs> magazine called Margin. You can oh, see the little oh, tra- oh, hang tra- on, how old are they a minute? I've never heard of Margin before. Uh, well, Any issues lurking around? There are some. Actually, there's okay, one brilliant. thing in it that does not embarrass me. I wrote a piece in defence of pretentiousness in the second issue, based on my <laughs> disappointment that, you know, the, uh, the cloisters of Raisinose were not crawling with poets and philosophers and in fact people were quite anti-intellectual and so i wrote this thing the people use the word sued a lot which you know yeah would set me off a bit wouldn't it if you think about it um, <laughs> yeah. and uh um although i think i only ever once got in sued's corner but which is quite surprising really yeah <laughs> yeah no uh, we did something called margin and yeah uh, the margin crew loved that record but it was a record that a lot of stu- students liked it was sort yeah. of that year it was Penthouse, the next year it was Songs to Remember. Okay. It was a thing you'd hear a lot in people's rooms. Uh, people would tape it off their friends. And it's just like a fantastic... I don't think it ever really got, did that 
it sold well, but it didn't ever like get in the top ten or anything. I don't think. But no, it was they like, had bigger hits later. I mean, we're, we're going to in just a minute. I'm going to ask uh, Mark to talk about the new audio interview, which is with them. But I just just briefly, I, I, to me, listening to that record again in anticipation of this podcast recording, I, I, I thought, my God, it stands up really, really well, and it's really interesting. And they're interesting guys. And obviously came out of the Human League. Martin Ware and Ian Craig Marsh basically were the the music in that first, you know, iteration of the Human League. Yeah. And being boiled was their music. And it's it's kind of seminal electronica, isn't it, I think? Yeah, and it's also very, uh, especially the first side, is very funky. they got this guy, John Wilson, 17-year-old guy they found in Sheffield to do the slap bass and and um, Martin Ware has got the Lind drum, I think, and he's he's worked out to, how to do these beats that, you know, you can tell it's a drum machine, but it's, they're amazingly funky and cleverly done. And um, the second side is like kind of almost like the continuation of the old Human League. And then the first side is like, oh, wow, they, they are actually real musicians. They're not just... Um, these sort of weirdo boffins making definitely. You know, I was I was I was music. astonished by how funky it's. I mean, particularly like the title track "Penthouse and Pavement" is mm. is like a properly funky piece of music, and um, I prefer it really to you know fascist groove yeah. thing. Uh, we don't, yeah. What's the full title again? We don't want your fascist groove. We don't need, groove. This, fascist we don't need groove this fascist groove thing. Which I remember was single of the week in NME, and obviously loved loved the title, loved their politics. But I was surprised by how well Penthouse stood up, having not revisited it for many years. I think their love of black music runs right through their careers. And at a time when, you know, all their stuff sounded like they'd been they'd grown up with funk and so on and so forth, that component, I thought, was always very strongly there. And, of course, Martin Ware wanted to produce Introducing the Hardline, according to Terence Trent Darby, which is yeah. a pretty fantastic yeah. production job. So that was, that was there. That was absolutely there. And was the vehicle for, you know, Tina Turner's yes. second coming. I mean, let's yeah. not forget, without that version of Let's Stay Together, would she have become this massive star again in the 80s? You Absolutely. Know? I remember Ian uh, Craig Marsh saying that the even on Being Boiled, what they were trying to do was a kind of P-Funk record, like I guess they'd heard, I don't know, Knee Deep or, or something okay. like that, Flat Flashlight. And so okay. it was a sort of attempt. So it is Being Boiled as does have a weird, stiff sort of, funk to it <laughs> stiff um, funk yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah it still sounds very good and and i like i did like the the initial human league but heaven 17 was something different and then by the time mark why don't we talk about this audio interview which is from 1988 uh seven years after penthouse yeah this this is adam blake interviewing them in september each year their new album with the appalling title of teddy bear duke and psycho was just coming out which actually was the album which its failure was the end was virtually the end of their sort of you know yeah. album making career certainly for a stretch and it's very much about the process of making the record sampling heavy use of sampling to construct construct the sounds going for a more 60s r&b sound using things like electric sitars and so on and so forth jasper let's have a listen to a clip because the the issue is how do you promote a band who isn't a live band which is obviously a pretty big and this question. is mainly martin ware talking mostly martin it? ware yeah How do you plan to promote it? It's a big problem because there's no... Uh... So you don't gig, do you? We don't, no. Um, 
see, we don't fit neatly into any sort of marketing niche. Mm. You know, we're, that's a bit, that's an enormous problem we have, really. I mean, that's just the way we are. I mean, we can't do anything about it. We just happen to be awkward. <laughs> yeah. Do you still manage yourselves? Yeah. So you don't have to. Do you have to sit around um, and think about image and stuff like that? I think gives a toss i love that in the <laughs> 80s <laughs> martin talks about his love of italy and about how the art is taken more seriously in europe than, than, than in the uk uh, we'll play a clip at the end where he talks about his love of frank zappa captain beefheart and quite an extensive bit about wild man fisher of all people these aren't the first people yeah, that was a surprise we'll get the next clip up they talk about the state of current pop stock cake in a waterman uh, their dislike of house and hip hop, which is kind of interesting. Let's have a listen to this one. This is on their hatred of pop radio. I don't listen to pop radio, so no. I can't. I no, can't I, I inconceivably. Can't. Well, it's like having somebody appalling. read the sun to you, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's worse. I think. It's like having somebody jabbing you that in the eyes with needles. <laughs> it's fucking horrible. But having said that, do you think Go Go Brown is going to get any airplay? Oh, hardly any. Well, no, two players. Yeah, it's true. We're talking Radio One here. Radio One, obviously, they're not interested at all. We went out doing regional stuff. Regional radio, fine. It's on A and B with everyone. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we think about leaving London. You forget that you get so influenced by being in fucking London. It's like a real relief to get out and go to the local radio. So it's like, oh yeah, we like the single. It's great. Yeah, yeah. we're on the A-list, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Yeah. It's fucking Radio 1. It's the strangle. It's the only natural network. What can you do about it? <laughs> it's funny hearing them talk at that time. I mean, 1988, you were already writing for Melody Maker. And it's just interesting hearing, because in a way, I think back to listening to pop radio in the second half of the 80s. And I'm sort of in agreement. So much of it was so horrible. Uh, and I couldn't even ironically enjoy Stockache in Waterman, I'm afraid. I'm sure Bob, if Bob Stanley was here, he'd sort of defend <laughs> them. But I did hate the way pop became so mechanical and soulless. Everything was midied and programmed, and it had this horrible, bright sheen. It just had no heart and so- Sorry, it sounds so fucking lame, but it hadn't really, it was soulless. And and heartless in so many ways. Yeah, it was the sound of the SSL desk and the Lexicon Digital Reverb, which is two of the worst inventions in pop music history. I mean, you probably you were writing about Husker Du, Simon, and 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 I don't suppose you wrote about Stock Aitken Waterman, but it, it just in terms of Heaven Seventeen, how do you think it must have felt to be a group like that who'd been so hip? Sort of stranded in a way in in the world of 1988. 
Well, actually, if I, one of my early interviews in, in 86 was when, when they did the previous album, which title I've forgotten, and they'd gone this thing where they tried to do mostly real music, real instruments and, and you know, not, not synthesizers. It didn't was that really the luxury work. gap with, with the no, big hit on it? No, no. It was the one after the one after that. It was How Men Are, which, and then there was another one whose title I forget. <laughs> um, We've always forgotten all of those. <laughs> yeah. But they, yeah, they didn't seem, they seemed kind of disconsolate, to be honest. They, I kind of interviewed them in some room in, I don't know, in West London, Notting Hill Gate, and it just seemed a bit like at sea, like, you know, there wasn't really a place for them. The, the only group of that time who, I guess, carried on the kind of new pop ideas successfully were the Petrol Boys, really. They were doing, like, clever yeah. pop that actually sold huge amounts and got to number one. You know, Human League was struggling. They had a, another big hit with, he teamed up with... Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis and did the human, human song and, and it worked really well, but it wasn't even a song by them. It wasn't really the human league. No, it was more Jam before. and Lewis really, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. And I think a lot of people at that time were, were of that generation of quirky, intelligent, out, kind of people coming from outside into pop was, were really struggling because there were the Stockwaker and Waterman people and people like that had found a way to just ruthlessly go for what, was hooky and uh, addictive and sort of bypassed all the ABCs and all those sort of yeah. people. Mm. That ABC were another group who I think were struggling by the late 80s. And yeah, also from Sheffield, of course, you know. Yeah. Funny, listening to this audio, Mark, it made me think about a lot of the audio that you added last week with Diane Warren yeah, yeah. from 1990. And in a way, I always sort of associate becoming aware of Diane Warren and, and her, to my ears, sorts of ghastly and formulate power ballads. <laughs> I sort of lump it in with that era, you know, turn back the hands of time and yes. ghastly songs for Cher and Michael Bolton. And it, I mean, I liked her in this interview, but oh, she's great. She talks about, I just want to keep improving my, I just want to write more and more great songs. And I'm sitting there thinking, I hate pretty much all your songs. Uh, I get like, nothing's going to stop us now. I get the kind of, power of it but yeah. what do you no, generally I, I, think about diane Warren? no i don't no i i loved it i loved that interview and you've got another one with her and she's just fantastic she can talk and she's very funny but the first time i saw michael bolton i was in los angeles making a record and we turned on the tv and this guy with the worst mullet you've ever fucking seen <laughs> no just, no just correction one of the best and our colleague Martin and myself were just watching oh, some television while our jaws on our chest and it's a horror, you know, it was just <laughs> ghastly stuff. Yes. 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 <laughs> so, so anyway, Diane Warren, there is one ballad she wrote that Mary J. Blige did called Give Me You, which I quite like. But well, I just Mary J. Blige can, could sing could back sing. of an envelope, you yeah, know. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so from Diane Warren to to um, Lee Scratch Perry, uh, I don't I don't think they ever worked together. Um, <laughs> we've obviously trademark rocks back pages podcast transition. <laughs> <laughs> we, we we have lost Lee Scratch Perry in the last week, and so we hastily put together various pieces for the homepage, including one of yours, Simon, which is a really fascinating piece that you wrote for the Wire. Um, about Dub and Roots reggae, and it really it made me think. 
slightly differently about Lee Scratch Perry. We've also got an interview that um, Vivian Goldman, of course, did with with Perry in 1980 and another interview from 2004. But I'll just quote what you say in this and then we can just talk briefly about Lee Scratch Perry. What, what really struck out to me was, you know, you make this point that so much of the kind of you know, music critic and geeky, like, obsession with Lee Scratch Perry sort of it privileges this idea of the, the the mad scientist of dub over the you know the the singers and the actual kind of songs that are written mm-hmm. the, the the roots reggae songs that dub takes and sort of you know mm. fucks up and i i hadn't really thought of it like that and you sort of say because perry became this you talk about the apotheosis of lee scratch perry that like people don't talk so much about people like, it was like King Tubby and and Keith Hudson, for example, you know, that incredible pick a dub. They all get overlooked because Perry stands in front of all those people. And do you still feel that like 20 years on from writing that piece? Well, it is, it is so many fantastic songs and, 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 and things that are just really blissful, you know, working with these fantastic vocalists like the, the Congos and, uh, Linville Thompson, you mentioned, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so he did lots of stuff. You know, he did uh, the gimmicks like the mooing cow and and sort of other sort of sound effects, and did some quite sort of whimsical stuff. At the time, I was kind of wrote that because I was kind of in a bit of a dialogue or argument with an emerging thing that was sort of saying the be- the best thing about Jamaican music is dub effects and dub tricks. And these have migrated into all these other forms of music. And I was sort of trying to argue that actually, you know, it's really, they can be used by other people in interesting ways, but it's really embedded in Jamaican music and Jamaican culture. Yeah. And, you know, um, it's, that's where it's richest is where you have the song, but it's sort of mm-hmm. perforated and by dub effects and kind of turned, it, it goes in and out of melody and into this sort of ethereal waft of sound. And I felt like, you know, people, it got to the point where people just entirely saw it as a, as a sort of vocabulary of sound effects and not the fact that most dub music was bound up with music that was this militant yeah. political prophecy calling down Babylon and complaining about sufferation and downpression and all this stuff, you know. And that's the stuff that I found the most, um, even though I'm not a raster, that I found most electrifying is where yeah. dub was working with that sort of element, the element of, uh, of calling down injustice, you know. It's a really interesting argument because obviously when he died, Facebook was awash with people mourning Lee Perry and endlessly crediting him with effectively invented dub, which actually just simply isn't true. I mean, I'd say that King no. Tubby has got to have that. What is interesting about Lee Perry is how he could apply dub production ideas to songs. I mean, you mentioned the Congos, Roe Fishman Roe is just, I think, one of the most mm. staggering things that Lee Perry did. And it's yes, it's got the sounds which derive from dub, but it's a song production. It's fabulous, you know. Yeah, and I think I think well, that's you, really exactly. Fabulous. And you say "House of the Congos," which is an album we all Great love. Great record. It's, it's prime evidence for the case that Lee Perry's best work was his productions of superlative singers yeah. rather than his own talk over dub. I just thought it was a nice kind of 
it, it, it just redressing the balance a little bit because he, he, I mean, and that was a piece for the wire, and Lee Perry in a way was one of sort of the wires. I <laughs> wasn't it? You know, yeah. And you you quote Calvin Johnson of K Records in this. It's quite a shocking quote where he says, "I'm not sure I can actually find the quote," but he effectively says, "You know." Because he had something called dub narcotic system or something. He says, yeah. I don't, I, he's just so obsessed with dub. He says, I don't even care that it comes from reggae. And, and yeah. you're like, well, hang on a minute. You can't really <laughs> divorce it from, from dub. So that's the point you're making. You make it very well in this piece. Yeah. And at that time, um, dancehall was very unhip. But since then, it's become, you know, it's been rediscovered and all that. But there was a funny thing where someone thought, well, we'll sell it to the, you know, well, the wire audience. And we'll do a, I think Soldiers did this. I'm not sure. I don't know accuse him of something to do it. Some some label like that put out a, a collection of dancehall instrumentals and it was like, so you're, you know, these amazing characters with these wild vocal styles, you're just going to strip them out and just have the, you know, yeah. the interesting beats for, <laughs> yeah. for nerdy white people's consumption. It just, it just seemed like, again, the same mechanism of trying to strip something from its social context and what it meant, really, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. And also it's pleasure as well. It's, there's something so deliriously pleasurable about a, a dub meister like Perry or Tubby, you know, turning a voice into this sort of flickering, ghostly mirage kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. I mean, we'll get the, the famous Augustus Pablo record was the first like, dub record. I mean, I'm by no means an expert on dub, but that record obviously blew my mind. King King Tubby's Meets Rockers Uptown. I still love it. I was given that in 1977 for my 21st birthday by an yeah. art school colleague, and I've still yeah. got it in my record bag now. It's fantastic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's only like two and a half minutes long as well. Blink yeah. and you miss it. It's extraordinary. It's, it's really yeah. like, it's like sort of music from outer space yeah. in some ways, isn't it? Of course, you know, clearly Perry was very eccentric and entertainingly eccentric. So we had to include this Goldman interview. It's actually a phone interview. He's in Amsterdam at this point. And there are quotes in it, which are just fabulous. Perry is. I mean, Love is the cure for all sickness. It's the new moon glow, poor power of sound. It's Ajax, super bush. Yeah, clean, clean, easy rocking. Out with the old globe and into a new one. <laughs> I mean, he just opened his mouth and this just this, this delightful kind of stuff comes pouring out. Yeah. So, I mean, that helped in a way to create the cult of of Scratch. Yeah, he's like someone that people do PhDs on and dissertations because you can analyse it in terms of yeah. uh, Afrofuturism and, and yes. uh, all this sort of using language as a weapon or something. You know? Yes, exactly, exactly. We Obviously, we do have to mention Charlie Watts and more than mention Charlie Watts. Because obviously we didn't do a podcast last week and Charlie Watts died. And as I found myself saying to people, the world felt like a slightly different place without Charlie Watts in it. And I think I can speak for most of us that it it, it felt genuinely sad. Yeah. And uh, it, it's kind of like when Keith Moon died, The Who died. And, and I think I just can't see. I know Steve Jordan is a very good drummer. And if they are going to continue to play live, I can't think of anyone better. To but it just can't really be the same thing. I mean, anyone want to just talk about why Charlie Watts is... I mean, he wasn't a sort of brilliant, technically brilliant drummer. He, well, he, he, sw- a, he, he, he swung. He was and he was, yeah, yeah, he swung. And that he was a minimalist as well. If, yeah. you know, if it didn't need playing, he wouldn't play it. And I sort of can't imagine 
certainly that sort of 70, 70, 68 to 72 Rolling Stones. I can't imagine what that would have sounded like. I mean, he, he was so particular. And, and he had a lightness of touch as well. He wasn't a big bashing backbeat man, you know. He's, he's terrific. Absolutely not. I mean, when I listen to something like Exile, it's kind of like, I, because of the way it's mixed, I hear Charlie all over that record almost mm. as much as I hear Keith or anything else that's going on. I think he's almost the star of that record. You listen to his pushes and fills on like something like Loving Cup. It's sort of there's so much pleasure yeah. in Charlie's drumming on records like that. Plus, he's so well dressed and so yeah. nice and humble, and so just such a humble guy. I mean, I love. I was at um, so Jill Jill Fermanovsky of Rock Archive, who we've had on the podcast and have collaborated with in the past as well, had a book launch last week that I was at. And the news of Charlie Watts' death came in at that time. And her most famous photograph is probably her photograph of Charlie Watts. And I think she won an award for that. And, you know, it's yep. in the National Portrait Gallery and stuff. It is in the Portrait Gallery. And apparently when that all happened, he wrote to her sort of congratulating her on being awarded for this portrait oh. of him and signed a print of it. Charlie Watts, brackets, drummer, Rolling Stone. <laughs> <laughs> it's just... You know, yeah. she told this story at this launch, so I've sort of slightly nicked her story, but I just think it's such a beautiful story that kind of sums yeah. up his modesty and his humble nature in just the nicest, like, shortest way. Drummer, Rolling Stone. Yeah. It's just great. It's uh, really wonderful how, um, you know, he's in the book group that is the essence and archetype of rock and roll, but he's so um, rock and roll. Yeah. There's this story, I think, I, I, this is a garbled memory, but someone in the band, I suspect Bill Wyman, did a thing where they tallied the number of women they'd all slept with and I think Bill Wyman's was like 238 it was into four figures the others didn't do as well they were into four figures but much lower four figures but Charlie Watts it was one yeah, <laughs> like, yes. yeah, like yeah. In, the, in his column it was like one <laughs> so he's just, he's to be in this ultra rock and roll band but to be outside it is a really and he's like a little commentary isn't he in the videos he's his, his expressions as he sees the you know, like I mean, there is the one idiots, weird, I'm with, you know. There is one weird anomaly. In the mid-80s, he briefly became hooked on heroin. Yeah, oh, yeah it's true. It's, it? it's just the most unlikely thing. I mean, you know, obviously Shirley, his wife, sorted him out, got him off that pretty pretty damn quick, you know. Um, mm. but, but, no, I mean, it, it, it's surprising because it's so anomalous. Yeah, I heard about long after the fact, and I just, when I, someone told me that, I said, that's unthinkable and impossible, and it, it didn't happen. I was just in denial, <laughs> and sti- I'm still in denial, um, <laughs> even though I know it's <laughs> even though I know it's a fact. But he's inseparable from the Stones music we love yeah. the best, and it is he just is he's one of those drummers you just instantly know it's him, and you can't. Those songs couldn't have mm. they couldn't have evolved without his playing style. I think so. We are saying goodbye to Charlie Watts with great, great sadness. At this point, Mark, I'm going to ask you to tell us about the best pieces or the most interesting pieces that you've added to the library in the last couple of weeks. 
Yeah, well, last week, uh, I'll briefly mention Kim Fowler. It's a really odious interview, Richie York, Rolling Stone in 1969. He says things like, I've fucked 7,000 chicks in my career and I've had to clap five times this year. Someone ran the maths on that when after I posted that on Facebook and they say it's literally impossible, you know, funnily enough. <laughs> Unless you're Bill Wyman. <laughs> <laughs> David Bowie and the Spiders of Mars playing The Winterland in 1972. This is uh, Philip Holwood from the San Francisco Examiner. A very poor gig. Strobe light speckled the show. Bowie's colleagues occasionally showed some flair in both the musical and visual sensational manner. And as they wandered through selections from various of their four LP, LP albums, the crowd grew less responsive and wandered off into the night. Ho hum. I mean, there was, there was a suspicion of Bowie, wasn't there? A little bit, an American suspicion of, of Bowie. I think it's also a coast I thing. I, oh, yeah. I, you know, I think he, he had an impact pretty quickly on the, on the East Coast. But it, it very much yeah, not they love West him in Coast. New York, of course. Yeah, yeah. Rod Stewart, the faces, been interviewed by Lillian Roxon, New York Sunday News, seventy-three. I'm not married. Why does everyone think I'm married? I'm just a single gentleman who lives in sin, says Rod. <laughs> Thanks, Rod. ACDC's Angus Young, interviewed uh, by Harry Doherty, the melody maker. He says, "We just get on and fuck and roll. Plenty of balls, plenty of meat, plenty of spontaneity. That's our main thing." He says, "To me, bands like Yes would be a bore to see, not unless they had some Sheila stripping on stage." Some <laughs> Sheila. <laughs> he really picked some very tasteful I, I, quotes I, I, for I, I, this I, I, week. Last week was a fairly odious experience proofreading. <laughs> Lastly, from last week, Donna Summer to Graham K. Smith in Record Mirror. He asks, there was a story that you intended to do a film about Josephine Baker. Is that still going to happen? No. After I got saved, it was not edifying for me to play the life story of someone who was a harlot. Thank you, Donna. Oh, Donna, baby. Yeah, God. I mean, there was a real twist in the disco tale, you know, Donna Summer. You know, the orgasmathon that was Love to Love You Baby, etc. And then, and then... She basically starts. She becomes this homophobic yeah. woman, it's and she horrendous. had a massive gay. Fo- she had a massive gay following. She completely rejected her massive gay following. Gay following. Um, yeah, but, but and I mean, goes, she almost came out and said that AIDS was, you know, was God's yeah. retribution on gays. I don't know. Awful. Yeah, awful. awful. Simon, do jump in if there's any sort of if you think I really want to say something about Donna Summer or whoever. Oh, well, I, just, I love yeah. Donna Summer, and I, it's quite. Uh, yeah, I was thinking this podcast with me doing all the swearing from the injury record, and then some <laughs> yeah. of the scabrous stuff later. It's quite a. It's definitely parental episode. It's parental advisory. It is parental (laughs) advisory. Okay, so this week, and this is great since we had Robert got Robert Shelton from the New York Times on on the site. Bob Dylan playing Forest Hill Stadium in 1965 with his electric band. This is literally only only two or three weeks after Newport, but already the band was changing. He had Robbie Robertson leaving in the band and so on. And uh, Shelton absolutely gets electric dinner. He says, nothing so dramatised the childishness of the audience's reaction to folk rock that when it ceased to boo and started to sing along with a, the popular song Like a Rolling Stone, the hostility extends only towards things with which they aren't familiar. By the time they get to know his excellent new folk songs, such as Tombstone Blues, maybe the noisy young boars who ruined an artistically strong concert may have grown up a bit. Wow. Well, Good for Shelton. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, he's right on the money because there was there was such a reaction, wasn't there? Was uh, there was all the kind of Judas stuff that was going on in folk, and it's really good to to see that he wasn't. Yeah, and he had been writing about Dylan from the, from the get go. He he, I mean, you know, he made Dylan with that first review. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going back to our last podcast, um, Laura Nero, as we were told severely to pronounce her name, Dave Marshall. Laura oh, Nero. Just, are you just going to have? Are you just going to have a go at Laura Nero? <laughs> well, to just get Dave, your revenge, Dave Marsh, who says, "I this know, is I read the review, and this Dave pos- Marsh can." <laughs> It says this is possibly the least Sorry, diverse. Dave. Sorry, Dave. Yeah, this is possibly the least diverse voice in popular music, except for Joni Mitchell's, which it resembles <laughs> in its enervating sameness. Barney's basically started crying. <laughs> yeah, but to, be, to kind of dismiss Mitchell and Nero as singers in one—it's just bizarre to me. I mean, they're making some of their greatest records at that time. What was it? Year? Is it seventy-six? So she's Mitchell has just has just released the hissing of summer law. Yeah, well, and Dave Marsh is just dismissing uh, uh, him. It's I'm with you on there. Nuts. I'm with you on yeah, there, but I'm absolutely good. with him on Nero. <laughs> and then lastly, Morrissey, Smith's period Morrissey, to Graham Kiss of 1983. I, I write persistently. It started when I was about two and leapt upon a typewriter. The rest of history. I feel people are just waiting for someone to say something, and I've got a great deal to say. So there we go. Classic Morrissey's. That's fluent Morrissey's, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I have to just get Simon on this because, you know, Simon and I both interviewed Morrissey and wrote about Morrissey. And where do you, how do you feel about Stephen Patrick Morrissey in 2021? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, 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 it kind of does cast this backward shadow on, on his work and it sort of makes it quite hard to listen to some of it, his, his opinions and his support of that. Group. What is it called? For Britain or something? Or uh, is it? Brit- it's not Britain first. Or no, I can't remember. Something like that. Yeah. Forza, yeah. Anyway, Forza Britannia. No, I don't. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember. Yeah, and it's pretty far foul. Is he a is he a COVID denier or at least? A, oh, someone, probably. It's the whole. You get the whole know. package now, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Incel, so I, COVID denial, anti-vax, Brexit, racism. I try yeah. and seal him off in this racism, when, basic racism. I mean, you can see the roots of these attitudes in the Smith sort of yeah. nostalgia and all that, but at least it's not really apparent in the Smith's music. I mean, I suppose there's a sort of begins to be a hint of it with Bengalian platforms. Absolutely. In, in uh, Viva Hate, there's, you know, but you, it seems so aberrant at the time. I remember asking him when I interviewed him, you know, this song's going to be taken as condescending, what, what, you know, but he, did, he just sort of just said, um, you know, uh, it probably will, and you know that's the price they pay for being Morrissey. Being and, um, <laughs> so you thought it seems like aberrant. It just seemed like our pet, like the Morrissey, the Smiths were standing up for the misfits and the outsiders yep. and the downtrodden and ordinary people and weird people and, and yeah, you know, um, exactly. So it just seemed, you know, it just you just kind of like processed it as not as a weird aberration, and then it, then he starts in the nineties with these odd flirtations with the Union Jack and all that. And it's like, and, and songs about skinheads. And so it's difficult. I try to keep the Smith and Viva Hate as this sort of block of music that I still love. It's so important to me. And I try and just pretend it all ended and there was nothing else yeah. <laughs> after some cut off point. <laughs> Listening to Hand in Glove the first time was one of the great like pop moments of my life. It was like yeah. a new language. I remember we were talking with Jack, Jeff Travis when we had him on the podcast and it just was like 
it was like nothing I'd heard before. It was just a glorious new expression of what British pop it, could be. And it was dissident in the time, you know, and it was, there was yeah. they were kind of against the grain of everything else that was going on. And so, you know, the disaffected did gather around them and it did sort of mean something. Which makes the betrayal sort of all the more heartbreaking, really. I think we've all experienced yeah. this as a kind of betrayal of, of what we believe. Yeah. In. I mean, a lot of musicians of that era have come round to disappointing opinions and of course. Johnny Rotten and, uh, of course. you know, Ian Brown and... Yes. Van Morrison. Eric this. Clapton, yes. Yeah. Ted Nugent, even Ted Nugent. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you can see a fairly straight line from, <laughs> yeah, from Morrison to from Ted, Ted Nugent. Ted to, to Morrison. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, he, I, although I did really love his memoir, I must say, Morrison. I thought it was really well written. I and liked so, it like, his voice and his writing about music was great. He found a, a way of writing about all these glam yep. people he liked, or he yeah. described Susie as as having a voice that would poison the world, you know. <laughs> I find it hard to forgive insisting he publishes a Penguin modern classic, though. That that <laughs> was just a step too far for me. <laughs> I think it, was a, it wasn't even a modern classic. It was just a Penguin classic. It went straight yeah. to classic. <laughs> yes, you're right. Anyway, yes. what, what, what have you, what's next? That's, that, that's, that's my lot. That's your lot. Okay, so, okay, well, we got, we've got some uh, <clears throat> minor... Morrissey bashing in there. Jasper, have you got anything for us? Yeah, I just want to mention a couple of things quickly. First of which is St. Vincent being interviewed about the album St. Vincent, which is an album I happen to really like. And this is Nick Hastard talking to her for Uncut in February 2014. And she's interesting. This is the closest I've come to a party record, but it's a party record where there's blood on the piñata. <laughs> there are some wild songs on it. The bangers to ballad mix is sturdy. I finished it in between touring with David Byrne. It was really fun to do the more funky, groove-centric songs on our album together live, and I carried that idea of a sexy rhythm section forward. You'll find a big love of Parliament Funkadelic on this record, mm. which it hadn't really occurred to me, but then listen to it again, it's like, oh yeah, that, it, is, it is funky, and it, is, it does have that kind of running through it, that groove, groove-centric, as she calls it. And I, I really like that album, and I think she's, she's really cool anyway. So I wanted to yeah, mention yeah, that. Simon, is, is St. Vincent the real thing to you? I never really clicked with it, I must admit. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, don't, yeah, I don't really have a well-thought-out opinion. I just didn't. didn't the record <laughs> that I heard didn't grab me, and I just never really huh. went yeah, back I'm, I'm not quite on board with her when I compare to... I, don't, I mean, maybe it's not a fair comparison, but like Pete, sort of PJ Harvey, Liz Fair, and others, I, I'm, I'm not entirely convinced. I don't dislike it. I like there's some tracks I like, but I'm not quite sure whether there's something really original there. Respectfully, you're wrong. But oh, well, <laughs> you're allowed to be. To quote Richard Williams, yeah, yeah. There's right and there's wrong. Um, <laughs> no, I, what I, next? Yeah. a really nice article. Michael A. Gonzalez writing in the Wire about the sleeve of Marvin Gaye's "I Want You." And it's from this series in The Wire called Inner Sleeve, which is a really interesting thing in a music thing to, you know, to write about the actual cover of a record instead yeah. of the record itself. And I like it. Years later, he writes, as a music critic trying to textualize a certain record intellectually, I'd think back to Sugar Shack, which is the painting on the cover, and remember that music should also be about feeling and emotion. The best critics at least try to dance. From Barnes's glorious image, I could hear the soul, smell the sweat, and truly experience the splendour of that moment captured so perfectly. I love that line, the best critics at least try to dance. It's <laughs> yeah. back to that idea of like trying to feel, the, you know, trying to actually experience music for what it is rather than 
over-intellectualize it. It reminds me of what Nelson George said about when he was first, he read this review of a brother's John Sam on Rolling Stone, and he said, this guy don't dance as he was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. exactly. But yeah. I love that cover, funnily enough. And I do, I think yeah. the I Want You album is, is, is a rather overlooked gem in the, in the Marvin Gaye. I love it. The track about, itself is incredible. No, I, 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 I like that. Um, I like Hear My Dear. I think there's some really good stuff on that. I think the trouble is that what's going on was such a monumental thing that everything else mm. pales in comparison yeah. to it. Yeah, mm. yeah, and let's get it on was pretty terrific as well. Yes. But uh, I think just the track "I Want You" is 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 one of Marvin Gaye's great great pieces, mm. actually. Lastly. On the Rise, Tessa Violet by Pitt Williams in the line of best fit in 2019. And Tessa Violet is a sort of YouTuber turned kind of indie pop musician who has some quite fun stuff and does pretty good music videos, as you might expect. And she says, I have a real strong sense of what I want, what I think is cool, what I think is right for the song. I like when music videos are a reflection of how the song feels, not a narrative of the lyrics, because I feel the lyrics already tell the story. I like the music videos to be visual representation of what the song feels like. I think it asks an audience to then think deeper about the lyrics. And I thought that was a, a kind of neat take about how music videos can encourage you to to feel the song more by what they show rather than just trying to narrate whatever's going on lyrically. Mm-hmm. Tessa Violet does sound like the names that a rock star of the 90s would give to <laughs> their daughter. You know, uh, <laughs> I can sort of think that if, I don't know, Noel Gallagher had a daughter, she, he'd call her <laughs> Tess of Violet. <laughs> what about you, Bonnie? You got anything? In the interest of time, as I often say, I think we, we should probably wrap up. Sure. Um, I've got to go on holiday soon. And at this rate, <laughs> I'm going to miss my plane on Friday. <laughs> so um, we, we have gone over time, but it's been well worth it. And obviously, Jasper will, will edit out the Kenny Jones bit. <laughs> um, which I've now mentioned again. Oh God, damn it! Um, uh, and maybe some other uh, uh, sort of gratuitous cuss words. Um, that's for you, uh, American listeners. Bleep, bleep, bleep. But, um, has is there anything I've forgotten? It's been tremendous fun, Simon, talking with yeah, you. Thank, um, thanks lovely, for joining lovely us. Lovely to today. be with you guys. Um, thanks so much. Obviously, love Rockbacks pages. I visit it a lot. Brilliant. Thank you. Well, well thanks it's for being on it. Yeah, it's really great get, having you on on this here podcast. So it's fantastic. We're going to yeah. start with Martin Ware talking about his love Frank Zappa. <laughs> on that note, we'll say goodbye. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> thanks for joining us. Uh, Mark and Jasper will be back in two weeks with Jan Yahelski, legend of Cream Magazine. Mm-hmm. I should be back in about a month, but it's been great. Thank you again, Simon, so much. Bye, lovely. everyone. Have a lovely Bye. time. Bye. <laughs> Bye. I've never been closer. I tried to understand that sudden feeling carved by another's hand. You zap it. All the stuff, or. I've not actually bought the last couple of albums. Oh, yeah, I tell you what, I bought. Uh, I bought uh, uh, Jazz from Hell. No, no, uh, this is. Uh, 
Mothers of Prevention. Yeah. I've never actually played it. I've I'm very familiar with all that. That jazz from Hell album was entirely performed on Synclavier. Yeah, I think it's more interested in the methodology of making an album rather than the actual end product at the moment. Do you think he's a complete autocrat? And that Probably. But then we'll there again, why not? But it's too late to hesitate. We can't keep on living like this. That was Heaven 17 in conversation with Adam Blake in 1988, concluding this week's Rocks Pack Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Simon Reynolds. Find his blog at blissout.blogspot.com. The hosts are Bonnie Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Pack Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com.